Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. This week, we have a show format that I've adapted and renamed instead of the News Roundup. This is Hot Take Tuesday, where Anar Volset comes on the show and he and I analyze and discuss the Figma exit. We talk about side project distractions, talk about no code and bootstrapping, and look at a tweet that calls them a bit dogmatic. Similar to our News Roundup episodes, Normally, it would be Tracy, Anar, and myself, but Tracy is out of pocket this week. And I, of course, I give people no notice on these things. It's not like I book them two weeks out. So I literally, I think I slacked them yesterday and said, can you do this at this time tomorrow? So I really appreciate Anar taking the time out of his schedule to come on the show. I hope you enjoy this format that we do every few months. But before we dive into the show, I want to let you know that MicroConf Remote is next week and we're diving into early stage marketing. We're going to be talking about marketing with Captera through SEO through conversions versus recessions, and more. We have Amanda Natividad, who heads up marketing at SparkToro. We have the founder of Gymdesk, who is just crushing it and doing really well with Captera. We have Whitney Detterding from CoSchedule and Gia Laudi, one of the founders of Forget the Funnel. Dates are November 1st through the 3rd, so it's next week. It's 11 to 12.30 Eastern time, so it's three days, one and a half hours per day. If you buy a ticket, you get the videos if you can't make it. Tickets are at microconfremote.com. Very inexpensive. This is the least expensive microconf remote we've ever done. So if you're in doubt, check it out. I'll be there live and I hope to see you there. And with that, let's dive into the show. Anar Volset, welcome back to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to do... Uh, a rebrand. So I used to call these the Bootstrapper News Roundtable, and then we started calling them News Roundups. And you know what they are now? What? It's now called Hot Take Tuesday. You like that? Nice. Is that why Tracy's not here? Because she's like the considered like opinion that all thing. No, I want I want Tracy on for the listeners. It's normally Anar, Tracy, and I that record these. Tracy happens to be at a place with bad Wi-Fi this week, and I basically gave y'all what like twenty four hours notice to record this. It's not like I say, oh, in two weeks can you do these things? I'm like panicked. Oh my gosh, I got to get an episode out, and so <laughs> set you a time. So we'll have Tracy back next time. But for now, hot take Tuesday. <laughs> And so today's episode begins with you and I talking about Figma. Adobe acquired Figma for $20 billion. And I have a TechCrunch story that we'll link to in the show notes. The TechCrunch headline says, taking out one of its biggest rivals in digital design. So Interval set, people, consumers, people who use Figma are shocked and surprised and angry and other befuddled emotions. This was, I would say, potentially inexpensive Acquisition question mark. I believe they were at just under 200 million ARR. 20 billion is about a hundred X multiple. So that's high. So let's let's hear it. You think it's a good move for Figma? Good move for Adobe? Fantastic move for Adobe, I think. I mean, I I'm not really in the Adobe space. My wife sort of uses those tools more than I do. But I think given given Figma's growth and the fact that being online first and collaboration first, I think that really they sort of kind of had to do it. Basically, Adobe is interesting in the sense that it's not long ago that they used to be like, you know, one-time purchase and they made the move to, to more of a SaaS model with a recurring subscription model. But fundamentally, at least when they started, it was just like, oh yeah, now you can download the latest version, but you got to pay as a, you know, a subscription, which is very different to a product that's like first designed online in a collaborative type environment. 
So yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't be very surprised if we if this doesn't run up against some like antitrust type issues, some competition issues. I, I I don't think it's a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. But I think for I think for Adobe, it was a, it was an expensive deal, particularly when I mean, there's like a hundred times ARR is one thing, which obviously is it's going to be crazy now. You you meet founders with a five hundred thousand ARR business thinking they can sell it for a hundred times. You know, when you combine the fact that they that's the that's the payment they did, but also on top of that, their stock price uh, I think declined at about twenty billion dollars as well on the announcement. <laughs> so effectively, it cost them double that. So yeah, I think expensive, but but potentially potentially long term value add for for Adobe is, is is sort of my view on it. Yeah, the way I was looking at it was at this point with a company an acquisition like this multiples are it's after the fact like that's we we back how they didn't go in and say well we want 100x for this company that's not what happened they basically said we don't want to sell and and figma basically said there's no one else to buy we are the one yeah so people know that i collect signatures and i collect comic books right old silver age comic books and there will be a comic where there's 50 graded at this level but then at the highest level there's only one there's like one in a 9.8 and you know what that person can ask whatever they want for it, even if it's the, a stupid price, if there's demand for it. And that's what it is. Figma's one of a kind. There are There's no competitor that's close to them. We see, we see that on, on the M&A side too. Like, you know, basically, if you're not for sale, that's the reason why you get super high valuations. People sometimes say, oh, you know, we've gotten in, in the past, we've gotten offers that are sort of not 100x, but like in the 20x ARR offers. And sometimes I talk to founders who are like, yeah, we'd love to get that. I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to get that if you're obviously for sale. <laughs> like you get that if you're not for sale. And basically the buyer has to convince you that no, no, there will be a price. Everything has a price. And I, I think that's pretty much what happened here. Yeah. And if there is a replacement, if there is a close second, if there is a slight commoditization, oh, I can just buy this other company here and get 80% of the value, you don't get 100x. You have to have such a, and, and have a trajectory. I mean, 200 million, I think they were going to double, almost double again next year in terms of revenue. Like they're already on pace to do that. Yeah, one of the most interesting things about Figma actually is is how slow they grew initially. They were like for years and years, they were doing the opposite of what we, you and me usually recommend people doing, start selling. They weren't really charging anything and then the first, I don't know if we, we have the growth chart up here in terms of like how they grew, but like it took them years to get anywhere near interesting. And then they sort of just, it just took off, I guess. It just sort of compounded after the fact. Yeah, they really did. They spent a couple of years building and then they weren't charging at all. I think they had a free plan, like they had no paid plan for a while. And it's interesting. Yeah, this is similar, you know, WhatsApp sold for, wasn't it WhatsApp that sold to Facebook for 20 billion? Was it that much? Yeah, I think so. And then Instagram sold for a billion, which at the time they were like six employees, seven employees. And then they had no revenue or barely any, you know, these are shocking numbers until you realize, no, Instagram was going to eat Facebook's lot. Like if Zuckerberg had not done that and they weren't for sale and there was no replay, right? This is, this is why you see this. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is the day it sold, there was so many people upset on Twitter is where I saw it. Oh, like, oh no, Figma sold, Adobe's going to ruin it. And they may or may not. But what do you think? I, I tweeted like, They've raised two, three hundred million dollars from venture capitalists. What do you think is going to happen? Like, what, you know what I mean? Like, what is the outcome here? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a, it's an interesting take. I mean, like, it's a little bit like the the path for them was either to be acquired by someone like Adobe or go public. And it's like, is the company like fundamentally different in how it serves its customer because it's public versus acquired by a larger competitor? I don't know. I don't really think so. 
Let's jump to our second story. This is a tweet, and obviously we're going to link up everything we mentioned, all the tweets and everything will be in the show notes. You can go to startupsfortherestofus.com to check those out. Or if you want our show notes in your inbox every week, sign up for the email list. You get a couple free guides. You get the 5 p.m. framework that I introduced last week. Anar has been copiously taking notes on the 5 p.m. framework and using it to evaluate. You introduced the 5 p.m. what? Exactly. So <laughs> this next story, do you see people, do you see what I have to deal with? This guy's my <laughs> co-founder. It's just rough. Wish me luck. All right. So Pierre DeWolf tweeted, Pierre DeWolf is the co-founder of Scraping Bee a company that has been very public about their bootstrap growth. And last I heard, they were talking about, what, 1.5 million ARR and continuing to grow. They are a tiny seed company, so you and I know their revenue. But Pierre's tweet says, the energy and efforts to grow five products to 1K MRR are far greater than the ones needed to grow one product to 20 to 30K MRR. Building new things is fun, but there's a significant opportunity cost to that and he puts it in bold, fun, to that fun. Just something to keep in mind. So in our indie hackers, I don't just mean indie hackers on the website. I mean developers who go launch side projects. Often they'll do a side project a month and they'll throw a lot of things at the wall to see what sticks. And there are even some models in the space, you know, some folks you can follow that like have are balancing all these products and it sounds really exciting and interesting. But I personally, I agree with Pierre. I've been in this situation and I can tell my story a little later. First, I want to kick it to you. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think Pierre's right? And if you do think he's right, why do people do it? Why do people do it then if it's not essentially the, the most efficient or, or smart way to do it? I think it's right. I agree with Pierre. I, I definitely think there's a there's a cost there. But I think people do it because you get a bump kind of when you launch a lot of the time. Like you get something and it's like, oh yeah, it's there's a novelty factor. You maybe you're excited about it as the founder. So you're maybe pushing a little harder than you might do for something that's been launched for a while. So you get a little bit of a bump and you get a little bit of that endorphin kick. And I, and I think that's what people chase a lot of the time. Like they come around, they're like, yeah, it's a great thing. Now I'm making 500,000 bucks a month, 1500, something like that. And, and the reality is post-launch, they have to, Usually they have to deal with the reality of figuring out whether they actually have product market fit. And, you know, they're staring down the barrel of, in some cases, pretty significant churn because if you're product market fit, people might sign up for it because you have a big following on Twitter or whatever, try it out. But they're not going to keep giving you money six months after you launched, you know, if they're not using it, if it's not something that you'd, you'd want. So I think a lot of the time with the launch, you get kind of like an artificial high when it comes from, you know, usage and, and income. And I think people want to, you know, they, they they like that piece and they go after it. And really the hard part is sort of the, the trough of sorrow, as it were, where it's like, okay, we have this product now and now you have this mountain of work to figure out in terms of what features to build, what marketing channels to experiment with, you know, systems that you have to build. You know, you talk about the difference between building a product, building a business. I feel like a lot of the people who are doing like these multiple products, they just like building products and, and the newer, the better and the shinier, the better. And they just sort of churn them out. The second step becomes, you know, how do you build a, a repeatable sales channel? How do you build out a team? How do you do all that stuff? And that's not necessarily as sexy and certainly it's not as easy to talk about and, and get kudos on, on Twitter about. I think I think that's that's definitely true. You know, I do think there are there are players who 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 do this well, but they tend to be bigger holding companies. So like, you know, our friends at Tiny Capital, they do this pretty well. But if you look at their approach, they very much like they hire a CEO 
incentivize them and let them run it completely. It's not like it's not like Andrew Wilkinson is sitting around and making, you know, CEO level tactical decisions for every single business that tiny holds. That doesn't that doesn't work. And I, and I think that becomes the problem because you as an indie hacker or whatever, you don't have the resources to hire someone for all your five or six or 10 or 12 products. You end up just scatterbraining across them. That's an interesting take. And I, I like your insight. I hadn't thought about the dopamine rush of the launch. It had occurred to me that building a product is different than building a business, is different than building a company. And the latter two for makers are a lot less fun, I would say. And so I think that as long as you know what you're getting into, like know the drawbacks to it. Don't kid yourself that if you are launching a bunch of products and usually the justification I hear is, well, it's validated because I scratched my own itch or I'm throwing a bunch of things at the wall and see what sticks. It's like nothing, nothing's probably going to stick <laughs> because you're going to throw a bunch of things unless you get really, really lucky. Like you need to put more into it than just building and launching on Product Hunt and Reddit and Hacker News. But here's the thing. It depends on what you're optimizing for, right? Back in the day, let's say 12, 13, 14 years ago, I was optimizing for lifestyle. I literally worked about a 10 to 12 hour work week. We had our youngest was little newborn actually. I was not optimizing for growth. I was not optimizing for even money beyond what I, you know, I was making 150K or something from products and I lived in Fresno, California. It was totally doable. And that was okay. And I actually owned several products. I didn't build them all though. See, I acquired a bunch of them for like 12 to 18 months net profit. You know what I mean? I'd pay like five grand for something and then like invest SEO and I'd be doing three grand a month later, right? So I was doing a very mini, I was doing a tiny, tiny capital, <laughs> mini tiny capital. But it was more about just optimizing for lifestyle. And then what happened is I got really bored. In all honesty, like I working 12 hours a week just isn't, it isn't all it's cracked up to be y'all. <laughs> and that was when I was like, I want to do something more ambitious. I had already had SaaS experience, but I wanted to, to double down on it. So I think the idea of working on a bunch of small things is fine. Just know what that means. Know that you are very, very likely limiting your growth. And if you are an ambitious bootstrapper and you do want to build that 20 to 30K thing a month, or you want to build the 100 to 500K a month thing, you're not going to do it by launching a bunch of small products. That's true. I mean, if I'm play devil's advocate a bit on the other side, it's like there is value in knowing when to quit something that isn't working. That is the other side of this. It's like, yes, it's important that you you have, you know, some staying power I think, and that you can really give something a real go. But if something isn't working, it isn't working. <laughs> you know, so that that is the opposite side of it. It's almost like you have two extremes. You have some people who are like doggedly chasing this thing that just isn't working for whatever reason. And then you have the people who are just like, I'm just going to spin up a new thing once a month. And, and I think both of those two are probably a mistake. Right. I think that earlier stage entrepreneurs often miss the signals that they would need to pivot the the opportunity. Oftentimes, shutting it down completely is not the right call. I'll bring up Drip as an example. We launched, I had a decent audience, I had people watching, signing up, I had 3,500 on an email launch list, I was marketing the hell out of it, and that thing straight plateaued between man, about 8K, 9K, just plateaued, churn was through the roof, right? So it was a limited feature set, right? It was just email capture and email sequences. That's it, didn't send broadcast, was not an ESP. And it didn't have product market fit. So one could say, well, we built something, it didn't work, let's shut it down. You know, And especially if you didn't have my reach at the time, it would have plateaued at one or two K, 
The only reason it got to eight or 10 is it was a bunch of people that were following me that were that signed up for it and tried it out. And so it was a challenging road and you can listen to it on startupstoriespodcast.com. It was grueling. That's like a 90 minute audio documentary recorded over the course of nine months or a year or something. But it was the search for product market fit and it was like slight pivot. We're going to add this. We're going to figure out this. We're going to try this. And getting there was a, was a hard road to your point earlier. It was not sexy. It was not fun. But then once we hit it, it was like, ah, that's it, right? And then every all the numbers go in the right direction. Just another point. I think like that also applies more than people think. So I think particularly bootstrappers and things, they have this view that like, as long as once I get to that stage, I'm golden. You know, I get to sort of, I, I figured out that thing. I'm out of that slump at five, two, three, four, five thousand. Now it's just gravy train until, you know, IPO. And we're seeing that with, with tiny C companies too. It's like, that's just not the case. Very often you need to like, not necessarily do a pivot, but you need to do something new or different in order to really take that next sort of step and really take the step up. So, because we often see not so much, I mean, it's something tiny seed, but, but outside it too, is people get to like 500,000 or a million or 2 million. And then that's sort of the limit of where they are with their current, you know, growth channels, the current product, the current pricing, it really needs to take that next step. And some founders just aren't up to it. They're just not able to, either they're just so married to this thing that was working really super well, and they're sort of sticking their head in the sand about the fact that, okay, now we need to do something else. We need to add another step up. Otherwise, this is where we're going to be stuck forever. That's right. When you hit that plateau, you either need another growth channel. If you need more top of funnel, you need another growth channel. If your churn is really high, you need to fit, well, we don't have part of market fit with this segment. So we need to add, add another element. Yeah, or you're, maybe you're serving SMBs, and now you need to figure out like how do you how do we really sell this to to enterprises at a much higher price point? I mean, I think that's part ties back to the Figma story earlier. It took them a while to figure out like how do we stop selling to individual creators and actually start selling to enterprises? And that they wouldn't have gotten the 200 million ARR without doing that change. And I'm sure at the time that was tricky, but it it wasn't just more of the same. Competition for great talent is more challenging than ever. Almost every startup I know struggles to hire fast enough to keep up with demand. In order to hire faster, you need a trusted source of pre-vetted candidates. Lemon.io is that source. They have an extensive network of engineers from Europe and Latin America, and every candidate has been tested and interviewed by their team. You're probably wondering, how is this different from hiring on your own? Number one, you can have an engineer who can start working within a week instead of months. Number two, you don't waste your time on unqualified candidates. Number three, you'll have easy access to global talent without going through dozens of job boards. And number four, it's more affordable than hiring local talent. So if you need to expand your engineering team or delegate some of your engineering work, use lemon.io. We have a special discount for Startup for the Rest of Us listeners. Visit lemon.io slash startups to receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of working with a developer. That's lemon.io slash startups. Our next story is about Apple's ad business and adguard.com posits that Apple's ad business is set to boom on the back of its own anti-tracking crackdown. So if you all recall... Apple basically has the do not track me between apps prompt now when you open apps. So like when I opened to Facebook and it asked me, I said, no, don't track me. I don't want Facebook and Insta and all these places tracking me. And so it really limits the reach that the third parties like Facebook and Google and anybody else who makes a ton of money from, you know, their tracking pixel and their, their cookies. And now, again, AdGuard is positing that 
Apple is stepping in and they are essentially, that they are able to kind of track you the whole time you're on the phone because it's their phone, right? And so I'm curious to you, I mean, and our folks may not know, but you have a lot of background in the mobile and the iOS ecosystem going back more than a decade. And so what what are your thoughts on this in terms of, hey, do you think this is true? Do you think this is fair? Like what, what's happening here? Yes, I definitely think it's true. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I went through YC with, a, with an iPhone app, basically, me and my co-founder did. So <laughs> I have experience dealing with the Apple App Store and, and, and their policies and, and how they think about things. There's no doubt in my mind that Apple is working on some kind of ad play. They've been doing ads, and I don't know if you remember this, and maybe if you weren't an uh, Apple developer at the time, you were. they had um, iAd, I think it was launched in 2000, early 2010, somewhere. Old school. Look at you with the deep cut. Yeah. And it was basically like, it was this, basically it was like a program. It was like native ads before native ads were a thing. It was basically a programming element inside of native apps that you could build in and, and roll that out. I think they shut it down after four or five years because they couldn't make it work. But, but it shows that they've been thinking about ads and how to differentiate. And really they've been interested in that, sp- interested in that space for years and years. And I think it makes total sense. I mean, knowing Apple, are they the kind of company that could totally like decide to crap all over Facebook and Google's ad revenues and then claim that, yeah, this is for the good of the customer and then come up with some sort of a of their own version of this, but somehow frame that as like, you know, we're doing it for the good of the consumer. <laughs> Basically like creating a walled garden of ads that's protects the customer, protects the consumer, but really does kind of the, the same thing inside their own wall garden, 100%. I mean, <laughs> definitely, that's definitely what Apple could do for sure. You know, if you just look at like, I'm sure we're going to link to the thing, you know, you, you were saying about the sort of logout prompt, like do not track you. I think it's telling actually looking at the differences between the two prompts. If you're a third party app, you have to, you have to, otherwise your app won't get approved. You have to pop up this prompt that says, allow, you know, so-and-so app to track your activity across other companies' apps and websites. Your data will be used to deliver personalized ads to you. Ask app not to track or allow versus their own, their own prompt is like personalized ads. Personalized ads in Apple apps, such as the App Store and Apple News, help you discover apps, products, and services that are relevant to you. We protect your privacy by using devices generated, blah, 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 blah. And the Trump is turn on personalized ads or turn off personalized ads. What would you like, sir? Would you like us to turn on personalized ads for you? That just shows what they're thinking. That, And if you also look at it, like someone else said on Twitter, I think it was that coolest. He was like, I think Apple is building basically a a DSP, it's like a demand side platform, which is what they claim not to have done for years and years. And the biggest play too is going after TV ads. And I think that'll definitely happen. Like, you know, I use Apple TV along with Roku and all the other crap, but Apple TV to, you know, watch baseball basically most of the time. And, you know, the ads that I get for that are atrocious. I mean... (laughs) Compared to like, you know, Google search ads, you know, even even just banners and stuff, the stuff that I'm getting, you know, obviously, because it's just blasted, whatever, you know, what audience watches baseball, the ads I get are like inevitably either political ads for local whatever things in San Francisco, even though I don't I don't get to vote in the city of San Francisco about the things that measures that they're pushing for, or it's some sort of a horrible disease that I should call my doctor about related to, you know, do you have heart disease and carpal tunnel? Then it's this thing, call your doctor about provoke or 
invoke or something random. So, you know, if you just think about how bad that, that experience is, do I think Apple's thinking about building something in that space, inside their wall gardens, 110%. I'd be, I'd be shocked, shocked if they don't. And they're going to frame it as like consumer protection. They're going to say, this is what they did. I mean, this is what they do with the Apple store. Like, how come there's not multiple app stores? What? What? Like, what an insane system. They basically say, oh, yeah, yeah, Apple, like, we're just, you have to go through and we have to approve everything. And like, you have to use our payment processor. That tells you how Apple thinks about this stuff outside, you know. 100% they're going to do. 110%. They guarantee it. Guarantee it. And I wonder if the, uh, you think there'll be antitrust suits that come out of it or whether the, and not by the government per se, but by like, I wonder if Facebook's going to sue them for anti-competition at some point. Facebook and Google get together, right? Could be. I mean, like, if you think about it, when you and me were coming up, like everybody was like, oh, Microsoft, they're the big bad wolf, you know, and they got into all sorts of trouble about, you know, distributing, you know, Microsoft or Excel with their operating system. But this is the same, if any, if nothing worse. So I'm, I'm expecting, you know, depending on how the political winds are blowing, I think they'll get some sort of a blowback on this at some point. But I still think they'll do it because the money is too great. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know, the like, thing. You know, why not? Because if you think about it, I started using the iPhone when just when it came out, and it was like tiny, tiny, you know, market share. Apple, the iPhone's Apple uh, market share in the U.S. is 50% now. Basically, it's not infeasible if Facebook, you know, keeps cratering and going after this VR dream, you know, fever dream of Zuckerberg, that basically there are more people that are using Apple devices day to day than use Facebook. And so if, the, if that's the case, then of course they're going to try to capture the kind of income, the kind of revenue streams that Facebook are, have been monopolizing for so long. So yeah, no, for 100% sure. <laughs> They'd be idiots not to. It'd be great. It's interesting to me because, you know, I've always thought of Facebook and Google as ad companies and therefore I share as little as I possibly can with them. And I've always thought of Apple as more of the, well, we sell the devices, that's how we make our money. You can be less concerned about it. It's not like I've given them any, anything except for, you know, my credit card number and, you know, to buy things. But this, this will change my, once someone's running ads, I, it changes my perception because I know. But they're not, they're not ads, it's just they're, they're, they're. A personalized ad. That's the perfect way. We protect your privacy, Rob. To end this story. <laughs> we will look after you. Don't worry, Rob. Our next topic is a tweet from Hana Mohan. Hana spoke at MicroConf Europe a couple years ago, an accomplished entrepreneur who has both bootstrapped a company to exit and has now raised venture funding for her second company. This one's about no-code and bootstrapping. She says, you don't need to code in 2022, but you should at least try. The no-code community has a problem with its rhetoric, like the bootstrapping community. I'm not writing either of them off. I'm grateful I bootstrapped early on. The way of life dogma is a serious problem. Like bootstrapping, no-code is empowering. A domain expert with a day job and no technical experience can build products without having to hire a team of developers. For them, it's the only game in town. For others, it's better framed as a gateway drug. And then she goes on to say, if you're a young person in entrepreneurship, make your first dollar, but then at least learn some coding. And I'm not, it's a whole thread. People can go read it. Obviously, we'll link it up. I very, very much share this sentiment where I think no code's amazing and no code is a tool. And much like a hammer and a screwdriver are tools, they are perfectly suitable for the thing that they get done, right? But I don't reach for my hammer every time that, you know, that I want to put a screw in or do something else. So before I weigh in, Anar, bootstrapping, no code, are they a bit too religious? Oh, that's actually, there's another tweet and it's from uh, Jovan. I can't, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but his was interesting because it lines up with something that happened a couple months ago when Ruben, founder of Signwell, was on this podcast and we were talking about 
how no code is awesome and it's really good for this, but there's some brittleness issues, there's some scaling issues, and that you know you can't build a full-blown ESP with it, right? There are limitations, is what we were pointing out. It was based on a listener question. And sure enough, like people jumped on it. And and on Twitter, we're just like, no, that's not true. It but then when I asked for examples of like actual full-blown SaaS apps, like that's not what it's made for. So Jovan's tweet says, no code is a religion at this point. Look, I do software development for a living. I prefer to do things in the most convenient way possible, but not a single web app I built in the last two years could be built with no code. Why do people get angry when I tell them this? You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, you shouldn't get mad. It's just this, it's religion. This kind of, it, it just yeah. is. It just is religion. I mean, like I've always felt that. And, and actually this, funnily enough, ties back to the whole Apple story because this is, to me, feels like a rehash of some of the conversations we had early 2010s because people were going to do the similar thing. It wasn't no code, but it was, you know, cross-platform, you know, you don't have to build any native apps. It was like, just put together the using this framework and then it compiles down to, you know, iOS and Androids and Microsoft phone or whatever they call it. And it was going to be totally like it was going to be the nirvana and inevitably ended up happening was that people would launch something. It'd be kind of like 70, 60, 70 percent of the way there. And then they'd be like, oh, crap. Yeah, we need to support this one native thing. And so they would add a little bit of native integration into this other this cross platform thing. And then they have to do keep two different code bases now because, <laughs> because it's it's now across platform, but with compile specific compile things, it quickly diverged into like, well, now you have two code bases again. It's just that you feel good about the fact that it's 50% of it is written in HTML instead of, you know, Objective-C or, or Java or whatever. So I'm very much in the same way. The fact of the matter for me is like, no code is just code. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a paradigm to build apps. And are there environments, coding environments that are more or less visual? Yes. Sort of no code is sort of like, to me, is is basically like a visual programming tool mostly. But I feel like the religion that some people feel around this is completely misplaced. Right? I'm like, these are fine for prototyping tools. They're fine for what they are. But this notion that like this is a revolution in programming, I, this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And... You know I'm a fan of bootstrapping. Anyone listening to this knows that. Uh, I bootstrapped all my software companies, and I'm a fan of no code. Within MicroConf and TinySeed, we have at least three, and there might be four, full-blown like line-of-business apps built on Airtable. And I think we have one on Bubble now, maybe. I mean, I'm all in on no code. If we can write less code and, and it works, let's do that, right? If, if I can have a producer, Ron, who is not a developer, go build an entire system to manage the production of our audio and video in three weeks, two weeks, three weeks, and it works, and nobody has to write code, and I don't have to hire a developer, and I don't have to spin up a server. Oh my gosh. So I'm a fan of these things. But the dogma of them, it gets a little old. I'm saying no code, I am bootstrapping. Like I, th- I think I kind of want to wrap up my thoughts with this tweet that I sent out a couple days ago. It says, never raise funding is like saying, never use a hammer. Funding is a tool. Sometimes it's the right tool and other times it's not. And that's how I feel about no code and about bootstrapping and about a lot, <laughs> frankly, about a lot of things in, you know, in the tech world that folks, I think crypto and Web3 and blockchain are really interesting technologies, but they're not everything. We're not going to reinvent everything on them, but they, they are tools and they can be used for certain things that I think are useful. Our last topic of the day also comes from Twitter. This is where Hot Take Tuesday is kind of fun because it. what you notice is when we're doing quote-unquote news roundtables, like 
one of the stories, two of the stories is news because so little news is fully relevant to this podcast audience in a way like, I don't want to cover Facebook's antitrust, blah, blah, blah. Like it's, a, who cares in terms of bootstrapping, right? In terms of mostly bootstrapping, growing SaaS versus it just feels like things that are on Twitter are so much more relevant, much like this last story, which I'll admit is just a bit of a fun one. But basically Ruben Gomez, I mentioned him earlier, he was considering watching 2001 A Space Odyssey. I said I wouldn't do it. Watch a YouTube summary of it instead. It's very slow. And then he said, as slow as the new Blade Runner. And I said, I liked the new Blade Runner, but I'll admit we watched it at 1.5x speed. And the torrent of comments, LOL, Ruben says, LOL, WTF are you doing watching movies at 1.5x? You chimed in with, what? People, there was like a gift that Christoph Engelhart put, people like, that's possible. I mean, it was just this boom. I took a lot of heat for that, a lot. So I want you to tell me what's wrong. <laughs> what's I think, wrong? I think you're a psychopath. Like That's slow. what's wrong. Like, you know what? <laughs> what the hell? Like, it's like a psychopath test. Like, what's, the movie's too slow. Doing? It's a good movie, but it's too slow. So you speed so, it up so and make it a good movie. You're like one and a half, like through the conversation, through the, talking about this, through the thing. But that's how I listen to all podcasts. You know, oh, Romeo, my Romeo. No, it's just like, doesn't it sound really funny? Like one and a half X? Or are you so used to like with podcasts listening to one and a half X? You think people are like this normal life? Yeah. Haven't you listened? Have you never listened to an audiobook or a podcast at 1.5 X? No, never at 1.5 X. 1.2. Yes. That's 1. tolerable. 1.2? Holy. 1.2. Oh, sir. Padawan. 1.2. 1.5. No. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a, a cartoon when you get past like one and a half. We get to Every audiobook, the audiobooks I listen to, since they record them really slow, I listen between two and 2.5x. And pod, podcasts, because it's natural speaking speed, usually 1.5. And so, yeah, 1.5 sounds perfect to me. Sounds na- no, natural. Sounds insane. You're, you're insane. Your, your brain is like. Superior. I am homo superius. It would be great if you could go through like in a conference setting and just like speed people up. <laughs> That'd be so nice. I could talk to more people. That'd be amazing. Here's the problem with my argument. I'm going to just fully mea culpa. Podcasts and audiobooks, they're mostly informational, right? Versus a, a film that is art. Like there, someone commented, I can't wait to meet Christopher Nolan and tell him I watched all, your movies are great. I watched them all at 2X. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's like bringing A1 to a to a really expensive steakhouse, you know, bringing your soy sauce to the, uh, the $400 a plate Japanese uh, sushi place. So. I'm still going to do it. Oh my God. That's, yeah. No, I, honestly, I was genuine. It's, it's rare. It's rare that a tweet genuinely shocks <laughs> especially, me. Especially it coming from me, huh? me. Yeah. I was like, what? Like normally, like your tweets, like my tweet, my tweets, as you know, is, is usually completely all over the place. That's a disaster. But you're always considered to and come out. I was like out of left field. He's like, yeah, Blade Runner one and a half X. <laughs> <laughs> it was only 2049. Well, here, and here's the thing too, I'll say, cause we'll wrap this up soon. Right. But I do not watch every movie or TV show at that, but there are some that are just filmed. Like I'm watching house of dragon. It's a game of Thrones, uh, prequel. It's a really good show. It is very slow. It's very considered. There's these long pauses. And honestly, you should just do what everyone else does, man. Don't 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 watch it at one and a half hours. Just sit on your phone and, and scroll through Twitter while the video is on see, in the back. I have stuff to do. I got things to go, people to see. <laughs> Anyways, I'll leave you all with that. That amazing drop of knowledge video speed controller in your Chrome browser. If you want to do that, I went so far as to my boys both want to, they wanted to watch Breaking Bad. And I'm like, I'm not sitting through five seasons of this show. It's a good show, but it's a slow burn. And I've already seen it and I don't want to sit. So I said, 
I'll make you a deal. The, the old one, older one is like me and loves watching things 1.5 to 2x. Every YouTube video is at 2x. The younger one didn't want to. And so we tried it at one and a half x. And I have to literally, you can't just, what do you call it? Aircast or air whatever, airplay, because Chrome blocks like Netflix and something blocks Netflix and all the, the services. So I literally have to get an HDMI cable, plug my laptop manually into the side of, uh, of the computer. It just mirrors it and plug it into the TV. It's a lot of work to be really weird. You poor children. I mean, that's what, that's what they're going to be talking to their, that's what they're going to be talking to their therapist about years from now. They'll be like, my dad, he puts me like this all the time. This is why I talk so fast. <laughs> my dad was terrible. So traumatizing. On that note, we're going to wrap up this episode of Hot Take Tuesday. Would uh, love to hear your feedback and input on it. If you are listening, you can tweet me at Rob Walling, where I will be reading your tweets at 1.5x speed. And you can tweet at Anar Volset, and he will argue back about how the San Francisco Giants are really good, even though they're not doing so well, are they? Indeed. And thank you so much (laughs) for having me on. (laughs) It's great to have you, man. See you next time. Ciao. Thanks again to Anar for joining me this week. Hope you enjoyed that show. Thanks for coming back week after week. This podcast audience is growing and it appears to be growing faster than it ever has been in the past. And I really appreciate your support. I see quite a few Reddit threads, hacker news threads, online discussions where people are giving a shout out to this podcast and to the MicroConf YouTube channel. And I really appreciate that because that is the best and easiest way for us to grow. I also appreciate anyone who has left us that five-star rating or review. We crossed 1,000 reviews. I'm not going to keep pounding on this because we we hit the, the goal and it's it's just really amazing to have that support from you. So thank you for coming back and listening every week. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 632.